and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Nazir, daf Lamed Bet, page 32. Page 32's opening Mishnah really begins, of course, on Lamed Bet, Lamed Aleph, Lamed Bet. So this is a very interesting case. We have here a person who takes the vow of Nazirut and then regrets that he took this vow. He doesn't want to be a Nazir. He conducts himself as if he's not a Nazir. He asks the Chacham, he asks the sage to dissolve the vow, and the sage tells him, nope, too bad, tough luck, you are a Nazir. You have to go through with it. So then the question is, well, when does he, when does that Nizirut count from? Like, does he start from the time that the Chacham tells him, now you have to be a Nazir? And the answer is no, it goes back to the time that he made that vow, including this problematic time when he wasn't acting like a Nazir. What happens if he asks the sage and the sage indeed dissolves the vow? And he had already designated a specific animal to be the korban, the sacrifice of the Nazir. Either. He, uh, the animal will go out to graze because it cannot be used as a sacrifice from the Nazir because he didn't complete his Nizirut. So what happens in the rest of this Mishnah is a discussion of the, the implications of this case going back to the Machloket, the dispute that we already saw between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai about the question of Hektesh and when, when it, what you do with it, right? depending on the circumstances. Amru Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai if you agree, meaning Hillel says to Beit Shammai, aren't, don't you agree, can't you agree now that this is a case where you have really seriously a, a designation, a consecration in error by mistake. And so here, the Mishnah just said straight up, right, that it should go out to graze. Don't you, Beit Shammai, also think it should go out to, to graze, meaning that you should agree with other positions about Hekdesh Ta'ut that we've already talked about, where Beit Shama, you'll recall, was very strict in treating Hekdesh as not ever a Ta'ut, not ever an error. So Beit Shammai answers up, you know, like there, it's a little bit of a sharp kind of, you know, dialogue here. Don't you agree that the one who is separating out that animal from the herd, meaning he's going to um, designate each tenth, right, as a tithe, each tenth animal as it passes by. So what happens if he calls the ninth one the tenth, and the tenth when he calls the ninth, and the eleventh when he calls the tenth? So now, aren't you going to agree? Meaning it's a completely different kind of case, but aren't you going to agree that, that, that all of them end up being consecrated? Meaning the idea that you can have a consecration that happens on the basis of an error that was made in the process of the consecration doesn't diminish the hektish aspect of it, the fact that it in fact has been sanctified. Amrulahem Beit Hill, so Beit Hill answers back. Lo hashevet kicho, it's not the rod, it's a great line. Lo hashevet kicho, it's not the, the rod, the staff that does the consecrating, right? Meaning the fact that the the staff touched the animal isn't what made it hektesh, or not by hektesh for that matter, and nor the fact that he says this statement of tenth in mistake in, as an error, right? Meaning just because somebody makes a mistake while going through the tithing doesn't mean that every single thing um, actually ends up being consecrated, and he's got a proof. He, they, Beit Hillel has a proof. Shema 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 
if he had put the the rod, the staff, on the eighth sheep passing him by or the twelfth sheep passing by, and they label him the tenth. So in that case, can you say that he's really done anything? Is that really consecrating? Isn't it just the case that he's done nothing? It's just a handling of the rod and a statement out loud, but it's not really any like change of status in a, a metaphysical kind of way. Ella katuv so rather, we, we have this concern about this ninth animal or the eleventh animal that really could be consecrated in place of the tenth. And that is because of the way the verse actually treats the consecration of the tenth animal, which also allows for the consecration of the ninth and also the eleventh. It's interesting to me that the Mishnah here does not bring the verse, right? But the idea here is that the Torah is talking about this kind of hectic, this kind of process of, of sanctification that can, in fact, take effect on either of those animals. Whereas just random other consecration walking by things doesn't automatically consecrate it, at least not as as tithing, meaning I suppose anybody can designate anything as holy, but that's not what they're talking about here. And the Mishnah gives Beit Hill the last word, right? Meaning it's not going to accept Beit Shammai's position as a, as a conclusion here. Um, yeah, I think that this is obviously a machlokas that we're going to see more of later on, like what Beit Shammai and Beit Hill are fundamentally um, disagreeing about. And I think Nazir is just a particular example of where that machlokas has, uh, you know, a practical difference. Okay, I'm going to move on to the next Mishnah here, which is going to give us actually some interesting historical context as well. Mishnah um, And he goes to bring his animal. Means that that animal was stolen. So the implication of this is, is that often, I guess, Azir, you sort of designated your animals already at the beginning of that process. Um, right? If he had declared himself a Nazir before the animal was stolen, then he is a Nazir, meaning he is always a Nazir. And he can uh, never, um, uh, he basically can never, I, I guess, get out of his Naziras, right? So in other words, if somebody, so the question would be, you know, could a Chacham come and then could he try to get it annulled, right? By basically saying, like, had you known this, okay, um, you know, that you would have, um, you know, maybe you would not have made, had you known your animal was going to get stolen, Maybe you would not have uh, gotten, uh, you would not have made this um, neder, right? But what this Mishnah is basically saying is, is that it, it seems at least that the animal being stolen can't really serve as a basis for that. Because he's just saying at the end that, no, he would always be, he basically can't be, can't be released in any way. But if he declared himself a Nazir and then afterwards his animal was stolen, no Nazir, then he is not a Nazir. Because in other words, if they can determine that when he made the vow, the animal, he didn't know, like he hadn't determined which animal was going to, you know, that the animal had already been stolen, right? So that is a different scenario. Then he could be released on the basis of theft because had he known that the animal had already been stolen, of course he wouldn't have made that vow. So again, that's the difference between the two cases. The first one is the 
one animal gets stolen later, right? So in that case, we say, okay, there's no basis to use that as a way to get him out of the vow. He remains a Nazir. And the second case would be a case where um, it's the animal was already stolen when he made the, the neder of Nizirut, then we could use it because then we could say, okay, he wouldn't have made the neder. But it's not that you can't say he wouldn't have made the neder with the notion that maybe in the future the animal could be stolen, okay? And, um, and then they basically are going to bring a, a sort of historical example of this. hamadi. Right. This was the mistake that was made by Nahum the Mead. OK, so who is this? Uh, so this is a first century Tana um, and he's a contemporary of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. There's about six rulings of, of, of his that appear within the Gemara itself. Some people actually think maybe he was part of the original Sanhedrin that was in Yavna. And he tells us the following. When Nazirim came up from the diaspora, basically to give their concluding korbanot uh, Yerushalayim, umatsu Beit HaMikdash karab, and they found that the second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. Now, I found this interesting for a number of reasons. So first of all, it tells us that this was still a practice that was done up until when the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, right? So even at the time of the early Tanaim, right? Like, let's say Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is of a first-generation Tana, the first generation of the authors of the Mishnah, people will start, were still making declarations of Nizirut. The second piece that's kind of interesting is the idea that somebody lived somewhere and they had no idea about the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. I think there's a lot of questions to ask about that, okay? Because you would still think that sort of like that kind of news would have traveled, all right? And so what happens? Amr laham nachum hamadi. So nachum the would say to them, ilu ayitam yodim Beit HaMikdash harab. Had you known the temple would be destroyed, would you have bowed to be Nazirim? Amru lo. And of course they said no, because in other words, the issue is they're in the middle of their Naziris. They get to the Beit HaMikdash. They actually can't end being a Nazir because they can't bring these uh, concluding um, korbanot, right? They never would have done that if, if, if they couldn't actually end it. So Nachum basically released them from their vows. He annulled that particular vow of Nazirut. But when the Chachamim heard this, Amru, they said to him, Anyone who declared himself a Nazir before the temple was destroyed is Nazir, is a Nazir, because you can't release on a, based on a vow, uh, you can't release somebody from a Nazir, from a vow, based on an event that happened in the future, but hasn't happened yet. But anybody who declared himself a Nazir after the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, ain't no Nazir. That person really is a Nazir because had they known, of course, they wouldn't made that vow. So that was the mistake that he made, was that he released those even who took that vow before the Beit HaMikdash was actually um, destroyed. Um, so the Gemara here um, makes a, you know, starts out by saying, I'm a Rabbah. Rabba says, the, the Chachamim, it literally means swept away Rabbi Eliezer from his previous opinion and brought him over to their opinion. And why? Because Ditnan, um, and now he quotes a mission that we saw in Nidarim on 64, right? We can release based on some 
development. That what Rabbi Eliezer said. So in other words, he could theoretically, Davar Nolad here would be that eventually the Beit HaMikdash got destroyed, right? Um, but the Chachamim basically prohibit it. They say that it's not allowed. So even though this mission in Nidarim says that Rabbi Eliezer would allow a vow to be, uh, you know, annulled based on something un- unexpected that happens later on, the Mishnah here in Nazir does not say that Rabbi Eliezer disagreed with the Chachamim or defended, you know, or defended what Nachum actually had to say here. So it seems, right, what they're, what Rabbi is saying is, is it seems Rabbi Eliezer eventually agrees with the Chachamim itself. And then the Gemara is going to go on and uh, explain the Chachamim's position a little bit. And then the Gemara has a very interesting discussion, which basically is, how could someone not assume that the Beit HaMikdash was going to be destroyed? In other words, whenever somebody made a vow of Nizirut, they should have assumed, yeah, well, the Beit HaMikdash could be destroyed, and maybe you're never going to be able to finish being a Nazir, and that's kind of like a risk you took by taking that vow. So Amar Rav Yosef, Rav Yosef says, If I had been there, right, when the Chachamim criticized Nachum for, you know, allowing these Nazirim to, to be annulled of their vow, right, I would have said to them, but it's written, So this is a pasuk from Yirmiyahu, chapter 7, verse 4. It lists the word heichal, meaning the temple, three times. So the understanding of that is the first two heichals, the first two temples are going to be destroyed. The third temple is going to last forever. So this pasuk teaches us that the first temple, the second temple are going to be destroyed. So in other words, did no Nazir, anyone who took a vow of Nazirut, they knew this pasuk from Yirmiyahu. Of course they knew the second Beit HaMikdash could possibly be destroyed. So the Gemara says, Okay, they knew it would be destroyed. Did we know when it would be destroyed? So then the Gemara Abai is going to say, yeah, we did. Didn't we know when the temple would be destroyed? And so here they quote a pasuk from Daniel, chapter 9, verse 24, right? That says, uh, 77s have been decreed upon you and your people and upon your holy city. So 77s, right, is 70 years times seven, which is 490. And so the calculation is, is that the time of destruction from the first Beit HaMikdash to the second Beit HaMikdash should be 490 years. And the Gemara is, so Abai is saying, okay, we did know when around when the second Beit HaMikdash was going to be destroyed. And so the Gemara says, okay, but no one knew exactly which day it was going to be destroyed. And so therefore, when people made this vow of Nizirut, they sort of like, okay, they assumed it wouldn't happen on, you know, when they were around that the Beit HaMikdash was actually going to be destroyed. Um, and so therefore, even if like, yeah, you thought that, you know, imminently the Beit HaMikdash was going to be destroyed. Okay. You still didn't really know when it was going, uh, when it was going to be destroyed. So I just, I, I, I thought this was a very, very interesting Mishnah, um, sort of getting into a lot of issues, sort of just the historical context is very, very interesting. Um, but also the idea of like, should we have made an assumption that of course that second Beit HaMikdash was going to be destroyed? And Essentially, you had a group of people who just could not get out of their Nazira, right? They were basically stuck being a Nazir. I find the whole thing fascinating. I find the, the fact that maybe they didn't even know that the Beit was destroyed 
fascinating the fact that somebody could be stuck in the Nizi route because they literally didn't. I mean, again, you take your vow of Nizi route because that's the right time, presumably, for you to do so. Does that you don't think about? I, I imagine if you have a Beta Mikdash, you don't think about the fact that you might not be able to get out of your Nizi route. Like the whole thing of it is so like timely, I guess, in terms of how to how to think about the fact that somebody takes it on. The only question I have, and I'm not expecting you to have an answer, but I wonder if people took vows of Nizi route as things got bad in you know like a a purification kind of process, a, a commitment to Hashem, to God, to make sure that the worst isn't going to happen the way well, that... we definitely see that. that there were, you did it for a birth. You sort of did it to, like, right, religious education. Like, there definitely is that theme, right? Was there more Nazirs when things started to politically get bad? Maybe that's an interesting idea. But I'm most fascinated by the idea that people didn't know that the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. That just seems so... <laughs> highly unlikely unless we're talking about a very small window of period from like when the base of Mikdash was actually destroyed i don't know i i just i thought that was a really interesting line in the mishnah itself oh agreed agreed especially we know i mean it's terrible but bad news travels quickly and we know they had a way of getting information from place to place pretty quickly because they do it for rosh Chodesh, right so i mean it's a little bit different i guess if you have information that's totally new but yeah, I, it's hard. Who, someone's living uh, living under a rock, and they didn't know. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 